the good news is that almost all node investing can be done from behind a desktop, behind your computer. You maybe want to drive by a property if it's nearby, but it's not something where you have to be traveling or out there working on the note. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you how to grow your wealth without buying yourself a second job. Really excited today, we're going to talk about note investing with a note expert, something we haven't discussed on the show yet. Very interesting. I haven't gotten into this kind of investing myself, but it's not because it's not appealing. There's definitely a lot of appeal to this business. Our guest today is George Newberry. He's a successful note investor. He's raising a big fund. He does some big deals. He's invested in apartments in the past. He wrote a great book, Burn Zones. There's nobody on the video right now, but I've got a copy of Burn Zones. Got him to sign it a couple years ago when I met him. So good book, Burn Zones, available on Amazon. Check it out. Worth a read. I finished it before I got home, read it on the flight. So uh, check it out. Once again, George Newberry, thank you for joining us today on Passive Wealth Strategies. Hey, Taylor, I appreciate you having me on the show. Really excited to talk to you again. You've got a very interesting business model, and we haven't talked about notes on the show yet. So for the folks out there who don't know, what about buying notes? How do you invest in notes? Can you give us a 30,000-foot overview of what note investing is? Sure. So basically, I mean, it sounds like many in your audience are real estate investors. So much like you would buy a piece of real estate, many times people buy a piece of real estate, but they also take a mortgage, a debt in order to help finance that. And so that debt, that mortgage instrument is what you're purchasing. And lots of times there's either a mortgage or a trustee and it's secured by a note. So people just usually say note investing. So those loans can be sold when they're performing. So when the people are paying, they'll be sold typically at par or some very modest discount or even some premium. But what I think the most interesting opportunity, particularly for your audience, is when those mortgages go into default, when people are unable to pay, lose a job, medical emergency, unexpected medical expense, death in the family, divorce, any of those reasons and more can trigger someone to fall delinquent on their mortgage. And many a times, institutional holders and banks at some point if that loan gets old enough, they'll consider selling that loan. And usually they'll sell them in some big pools of loans. They'll sell them to some Wall Street funds or whatnot. And over time, they trickle down to groups like AHP and then American Home Owner Preservation, which I run. And then after that, they'll even trickle down to individual investors who can sometimes simply buy one note at a time. And there's an advantage when you're the local investor especially if that mortgage is secured by a property that you can drive to. I think it gives that investor a big advantage over even AHP, who's based in Chicago, and we try to network with people across the country, but we don't have insight into what's going on in that property in Denver, Kansas City, or St. Louis. And Wall Street is even less, uh, more ill-equipped and big banks even more ill-equipped than that. So I think the pricing probably for an individual investor, they may pay a little bit more because they're only buying one loan. But I think they have the optimum tools that they buy right to use the low being local to their advantage. Hmm. So when you talk about the banks selling it at a discount, that means if there's a hundred thousand dollar balance on the note, that's the outstanding that they'll sell it at a valuation less than a hundred thousand dollars. But what makes like what's a typical discount that would be appealing to a note investor? It depends on the problem with the loan, but there's two big factors that you're going to bid off of. One is how much is owing. So people say, what's the unpaid principal balance? So the, how much is due on the principal, not including legal fees and delinquent payments and whatnot, then how much is the property worth? So if you have $100,000 due and the property's worth 50 and they're a year delinquent, <laughs> you know, and that's common that maybe parts of the country have recovered, but others haven't. And you'll see that loan trading for 35, 40, 50, 60 cents. 
not of the UPB, but of the value. So people will pay anywhere from 15, 20, 25, maybe more lately if the property is in particularly good shape and it's occupied. Somebody may pay more for that, hoping they'll do a modification. But that's ideally up until a few years ago, we would always pay 50 cents of the current property value or less for just about everything that HP bought. And we bought thousands of thousands of loans. Lately, the market, just as the real estate market is, has become more robust, I mean, there's a lot of dollars competing for whatever deals there are, so that's push pricing up. Same things happen in notes. So it's become tougher to buy in and yields. We would hit returns in the 30s and 40s. Now I'm shooting for the high teens, low 20s, and even that's kind of challenging in today's market. So it's definitely changed. Now, once a downturn hits, it's the same thing every time. We'd expect that the supply will vastly outstrip the demand and all the prices will sink. But in today, it's the opposite. So somebody getting into this business is just thinking about it from the outside. So, okay, great. Buying a note at a discount and ostensibly buying a property at pretty steep discount, but I still have a borrower involved. Wells Fargo on time, why are they going to pay me on time? How do we change that and get them to start paying? Or what are our options? How do we end up making a return sure. on the note? So if they owe 100 on a house that's worth 50 and you buy it for 25, let's say. So you have a lot of flexibility to drop the payment, maybe settle a delinquency for a discount or capitalize it, whatever you want to do with it. But you've bought it at 25. So they were paying 800 on that $100,000 loan and you drop the payment to 400, you know, maybe pretty exciting for you. And that dropping the payment in half would be transformative for the family. So when this is done right, it could be a win absolutely for the investor and the homeowner. Because the alternative is to say that, well, I'm not going to modify, so I'm going to foreclose. And you see investors come in, yeah, I'm going to buy a bunch of loans and I'm just going to foreclose, kick the people out, get the REO and sell this big profit. But a lot of homeowners are going to say, well, I'm not going anywhere. And so you file the foreclosure and then they'll get an attorney. They'll fight the foreclosure. Now you're paying legal fees to your attorney, the investor is, and the homeowner. So the homeowner who could be paying you payments is now paying legal fees. And that can go on for a while. And some of those things, two or three years, now they're not paying taxes. They're not paying insurance. The investor's advancing that. All of a sudden, that 25000 you paid for the loan, you know, now 5000 legal fees, 5000 taxes, insurance. They're not taking care of the property. Property value drops to thirty five wait, I'm losing money now. So what we found is the best way to do this is to buy loans and be prepared for whatever outcome the homeowner wants. So if they want to stay and do a mod, then be prepared to do a mod. If they don't want to stay and they want cash for Dean and Lou, I mean, look at their thinking, hey, I owe 100, this house is only worth 50 and they're giving me $1,000 or $2,000 to sign a Dean and Lou. I mean, and I haven't paid in two years, that's a great deal. So they'll take that deal if they don't want to stay in the house or better yet, if they've already gone, if the home is already vacant, then it really makes sense if you can track them down and give them $1,000 and then you avoid the time and expense of foreclosure, huge win. The ones where we do the best are the ones where we buy them, we get in contact with the homeowner right away and make a deal, whatever deal they want. Again, they stay, they pay us, they go, we pay them. And sometimes there's three alternatives, a modification, a deed in lieu. And the third one is sometimes the homeowner will give you a lump sum settlement. So they owe 100 it's worth 50. You bought it for 25 and you can say, hey, you know, we'll settle it for 45 or 50 grand in a lump sum settlement. A homeowner who's struggling behind other payments, they may not be able to do that. But if they have a friend or family member who can get a new mortgage and you accept a short payoff, that happens. We've had, I remember one where we had a grandmother who was struggling in foreclosure. We bought the loan, five grandkids all kicked in like five or $6,000. 
and they paid off her, her loan at the discounted amount. And we still made money on it. They were thrilled. Everyone was really happy. So that's, I think, the approach that really works. And the big banks and the big Wall Street funds, they're not granular enough. You know, they're not focused on each individual loan enough to customize solutions. But that's how you can really make money in this business and be open to resolutions that make sense. Because you pointed out the big thing is that homeowner in the middle. It's not straightforward. You have to find a way to work with them or you're going to end up in paying legal fees to foreclose and potential litigation. Okay. So we have this business model in principle that it sounds great, but whenever there's a business model that sounds like it doesn't have any flaws or there's no problems and everybody runs into that market, that's just how capitalism works. And the easy deals kind of go away, the prices rise and that all kind of evaporates. And you're doing this professionally with a significant fund. So there are clearly a variety of size of players in this market. What are the keys to creating a good deal flow in this market? I mean, clearly you've been able to do it. So how would Joe Sixpack with some money to invest in notes if he wanted to get into it? How could he do this or could he even do it? How would you get started? The answer is yes, he could do it, but it is challenging. It's a very opaque business. Real estate in general is fairly transparent. You can look in the MLS, you see what's for sale. There's going to be some off-market special deals, but by and large, things are transparent. You can see records of what homes have sold for previously. And then no, it's completely different. There's no MLS. There's no transparency into what the person you're buying the loan for, what they paid. And there's no reason for them to tell you. So a new person getting in the market, there's two questions they always ask. One is, where do I buy the loans? The number one question. And it's a tough to give an answer. And number two question is, hey, I have some money, but can I put a down payment? Can I finance my loans? And those are the two questions that almost every new note investor asks. And even though I've asked a thousand times, I don't know if I've ever really given a good answer. There are, AHP does sell loans upon occasion, not so much now because it's tough to buy loans. So we're simply working out what we have. The other, some other funds that do, the group called Condor in uh, California that will sell some loans individually. The big Wall Street funds, they won't do individual loan sales. They will say it's just too much work. They know they can sell them for a little bit more, but it's just too much house, so they're not going to do it. So they'll sell it to some groups like Condor and HP, which will then occasionally sell them individually. But there isn't a robust, transparent platform or market for these. I mean, there's Loan MLS. There's a group. Note School has a small platform where they sell a handful, a modest number of loans. There used to be FCI Exchange. Now it's just called The Exchange. So those are places to look. I don't know if you're going to get great deals because there isn't enough product in any of those platforms to create like a robust market. So there's a handful of a modest number of notes, and then there's a pretty good number of investors. So anything that's a good deal is gobbled up right away. And by and large, you won't find, it's not like the MLS Well, you can see a lot of like not great deals and all, oh, wow, that's a great deal. And someone just listed on the MLS. You won't find that so much on the note sale sites yet. Hopefully that'll change. There's been some attempts of people to, to create like a loan market and stuff like that. None of them have really gained traction yet, but hopefully that'll change in time. Mm. Yeah, it's all interesting. I mean, it sounds like I can't just pick up the phone and we've got BB&T here in Richmond. I can't just pick yep. up the phone and call BB&T and say, hey, Mike, send me your list of notes you're trying to sell or something like that. Like there's an advantage to having a relationship with a potential note seller or note originator that's selling these things off. Absolutely. And 100% agreed. And that's, I mean, it's a problem that, that I keep struggling into and I'd like to find, I mean, we do have HP at this point has a lot of relationships, so it's, it makes it easier for us to buy. But there is an opportunity in that a lot of local investors will be willing to pay a premium over what we would pay, a modest premium, but they could still make good money at that. But we need to find a way to do that. And for a while, auction.com started offering notes that kind of 
didn't work out for whatever reason, and I don't think they do it anymore, but there needs to be an auction.com just for notes. And I've talked to people about it. At some point, hopefully it'll happen because for now, there's not enough notes to really make. There's a lot of notes, but there's not enough excess supply to make sense for anyone to really to focus on marketing to the smaller note buyer. But when the next downturn hits, then they could really play a vital role. If there was a transparent marketplace where they could go and find deals in their area that are priced attractively, maybe on an auction format, and there are big institutions that just want to need to sell these portfolios, at some point that's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And that Mm. will be an exciting time because the smaller local investors can probably have the biggest impact I mean, in their own communities by buying loans, places they can drive to. Absolutely. I mean, I would certainly pay more for, if I was a note buyer, pay more for a note on a property. I could drive by anytime I want, essentially, and just see what's going on. Or even before I buy it, just go check it out and see those pictures, real pictures. What's it look like right now? But when we get into, when you're in this business, I'm sure there's some kind of protection, right? That you can't just call up the borrower. Hey, I bought your note. When are you going to start paying me? What are the rules there? You know, we're not giving any specific investment advice here. We're just going at a high level over the rules around interacting, you know, between the note holder and the property owner and the middleman, essentially. What's that all have to do? Yeah. So I'll make a confession. When we first, AHP first started buying loans in 2011, we were completely ignorant. So we would buy loans from some big banks and we simply, okay, their phone number is this and we dial them. And we'd say, hey, we just bought your loan. And what do you guys want to do? And do you want to do a modification? Do you want to deed to deed and lieu? And the people were very responsive. Well, I'd love to do a modification. You know, here's the payment we could do. Oh, that's great. Do it. Or I want your cash. We quickly realized that we're not allowed. To, you can't do that. So anyone hearing that, you can't do what I just said we did. We did it, but we quickly realized that you have to use a third-party service that's licensed to be a servicer, to contact homeowners. They have to do mini Mirandas. Basically, you know, this is an attempt to collect a debt and any information you use that you provide will be used to collect a debt. Things like that has to be done. As you scale, even when you start, you really want to start in a compliant manner and use a licensed servicer. There's plenty. HP, coincidentally, HP servicing is a servicer. I'd highly recommend them. But if you didn't, there's others like FCI, BSI, SN. Suddenly they all have acronyms, but (laughs) I just realized that. But you need to use a licensed servicer. Uh, Most of the ones I just mentioned are open to taking somebody who has one loan or five loans, 10 loans. As you get to bigger servicers like Carrington, if you go and say, hey, I have 10 loans, they're like call HP or somebody else because it doesn't make sense to us. But the servicer will charge anywhere from typically $30 to $95 to service the loan. And for that, they're the ones calling the homeowner. They're trying to work out resolutions. They report back to you each month on, hey, this is the status of your loans. This is who's paid. This is the status of this foreclosure or whatever's going on. You want to be very active. I mean, people buy into this business, they'll buy the loans and then, okay, service or make a lot of money for me. That won't work that well in general. So you want to like, service or here's the loans. We're going to work in partnership or as a um, get a quarterback you. I want this one to go. Whatever insight you have, you probably have more because you just bought the loan. So here's what I understand about this loan. It's occupied, but it's occupied by squatters or it's vacant. You know, we want to have someone go out and board it up right away, or we want to please it's vacant, subject to vandalism, contact the homeowner, try to get a deed in lieu. Well, they're not at the home. So after the servicer will be someone will be the party that will do a skip trace, try and find out, well, where is this homeowner right now? What phone numbers are out there? And if you can reach that homeowner on a vacant home and offer them cash for deed and lieu, it really works extremely well, as opposed to just give it to an attorney and wait four, six months or sometimes years in order to uh, get title to the property. So it can really shortcut. I mean, I'll give you an extreme case. In our early days, property in Florida, a condo, we had bought the loan. 
And we found out through some online research that the homeowner had left and they moved to Jamaica and they worked for Schweppes, like the beverage company. And so we worked with a servicer and were able to send a deed and they called the guy at Schweppes. He worked there. So they were able to get a hold of him <laughs> and they made an arrangement. We hired an attorney in Jamaica. We sent them the deed in lieu. We sent him the, his fee plus the money to give to the homeowner. The borrower went to the attorney. They together went to the U.S. Embassy, got the deed in lieu notarized. The attorney gave him $1,000 and that was it. But the guy was great. Hey, I got rid of this house that I'd walked away from anyway. And we were able to then promptly sell the property. So those are the solutions that they're not going to do that on their own. But if you've done a little online research, say this guy's in Jamaica, can you do this? Well, they're legally can do it. And you'd have to probably help facilitate, hey, here's the attorney, because most servicers won't go to those extremes. But if you nudge them to and kind of point coach them through it, they can do it. I mean, you'd think it's the other way around that the servicer should be coaching the investor, but it needs to be both ways. You both share whatever insight and information you have and you come to solutions. And that sounds like a lot of work. But that's how you make money on this thing. Because if you just give them to the servicer and say, foreclose on everybody or whatever, you're not going to make money. Interesting. So you have to have insight into the business. I guess insight into the situation. And then I guess just paying attention to making the servicer priority. It should, everybody should be a priority, but it's always the thing where you're the one always following up. You're going to help maximize the likelihood that your servicer is going to spend more time on your deals and help get them resolved. Mm, Interesting. So this being passive wealth strategies for busy professionals, Yes, we are busy professionals. We've got jobs. We've got things that are bringing us our income and we're trying to, we're growing our wealth as passively as we can. And I find with most asset classes, there's some kind of hierarchy of passivity as far as getting involved and investing. And I hear from what you're talking about, this spectrum seems to go from go do it yourself and start buying up notes to investing in funds and then somewhere in between there. So if somebody wants to go buy notes on their own and run this business themselves, how many hours a week does that usually look like? I mean, we comparing this to say buying a single family house and running it yourself where you're getting calls in the middle of the workday and you're going to go find a guy to fix your fix a toilet or something like that and then all the way to a fund which is probably very passive. I mean, let's talk about the spectrum of time commitment here. So the good news is that almost all note investing can be done from behind a desktop, behind your computer. You're not going to need to, I mean, you maybe want to drive by a property if it's nearby, but it's not something where you have to be traveling or out there working on the the note. Your work would be calls with your servicer, doing due diligence. So that's if you're buying it, even though it's passive income, you want to take an active approach in terms of making maximizing your outcome. Now, if you were to buy, I'll go, so that's on the kind of far spectrum of the most active passive strategy. If I go less active, there's other strategies that probably have smaller yields, but still very attractive yields, uh, which would be at buying reperforming loans, let's say loans where they were behind, but then somebody has purchased that loan and done some kind of payment plan. Maybe they paid on time for six months or 12 months. At that point, those loans are available. And I mean, today's market, They may be in the high single digits, maybe in the low teens if you're doing well, or it's a lower value or less desirable neighborhood, but people are still paying. So those can be reasonably attractive returns. And then the most passive would be investing in a fund. And HP servicing would be an example. We pay at first 10% to investors annually. So they get a 10% return. And that's like simply, hey, here's my IRA money or here's my regular money. And you can put in $100, $100,000, whatever it is. And that will simply earn a distribution every month on the 10th. And so that's the most passive. 
Yeah, yeah. There's a good spectrum there, and it makes sense. The more effort that you put in yourself, the more opportunity there is to get paid. But the trade-off is, okay, we only have so many hours in the day, and yep. I think everybody understands that. Now, when it comes to investing in a fund, I personally like to use my retirement account to invest. Is that something you can use like a self-directed IRA for? Absolutely. Yeah. So HP servicing, there are some other funds as well, and they will oftentimes accept self-directed IRAs and work with typically work with most of the usual custodians and trusts and SCO. There's a whole bunch of them, IRA services, and most of them will work together and get those retirement funds invested. Hmm, interesting. So one of the big concerns that a lot of folks have I talked to about self-directed IRA investing, this isn't a self-directed IRA type of conversation, but since sure. we're, on the topic, we're on the topic, is UBTI or UBIT tax, the, one of the very few taxes that your IRA might need to pay if you're investing in a levered asset. We're not giving out specific tax advice at all, but in these funds, you know, is that a factor when you're considering investing in, with a self-directed IRA or no, or does it depend? Absolutely. It's something you want to be aware of. Some funds are unlevered. Others are levered. We've been, our current fund is not levered, but we can lever it and we have levered it in the past. Historically, the reasons we've levered is because a great deal comes up. We don't have enough money to buy it. So we'll take short-term leverage just to close the deal, then pay it off as more equity comes in. That's what we've done historically. And that can generate unrelated business tax income, UBTI, as you referred. So that can be a challenge for our investors. So far, it has not, for HP speaking, it has not been there's a threshold. I forget the threshold, but is it $500,000 or something? There's a point at which it's de minimis and you don't need to report it. I forget the threshold. And like you said, consult with your tax advisor. But if it's a small percentage of UBTI, typically it doesn't translate into any additional liability for the investor. And so far, I think we've kept in that range. It doesn't say that way in the future and it can impact it. On the other hand, to pay that UBTI, I don't know the specifics, but it would be interesting to trade off. Hey, I'm getting a 10% return. If I pay it, does it drop my return to 7%, 8%? What does it do? I don't know, but it still may be attractive trade off. Even if you say, even though there hasn't been a history of UBTI on this fund, worst case scenario, what would that be? It may be an interesting calculation to do. Yeah. I don't know. But like you said, consult with your tax advisor. We're certainly not giving out uh, tax advice here to anybody. So, I mean, we could definitely talk about this all day. I'm curious, some investors get concerned about, especially if they're just first getting into real estate from a stocks and REITs type of publicly traded background where there's a lot of liquidity. Sure. If they're looking at getting into a note fund like yours, and we'll talk about yours since you're here, is that what's the liquidity situation look like there? What's the typical lockup period? You know, just round numbers. We don't necessarily need super specifics, but. What's that look like compared to stocks and bonds and such? No, that's a great question. So I can be super specific because we built in the ability for liquidity. So it's best efforts liquidity. So it doesn't mean that, well, automatically you you can push a button like a bond or so you can sell it or a stock, you can sell it the next day it's liquid. But with us, you can give us 30 days notice that I want to redeem all or part of your investment. And we will undertake our best efforts within that 30 days to liquidate that investment and all or part, whatever you request. Now, if you do that in the first year, then your return will drop from 10% to 8%. If you do it in the second year, it'll drop from 10% to 9%. Anytime after two years, you get to keep the full 10%. So that's what we offer. And it's actually worked out pretty well. Historically, we've been able to honor redemptions within the 30-day period. Lately, there's actually been the management changes. There were a delay, but actually we've catching up everything this week. Nice. That's awesome. A lot of like syndications, you don't have that opportunity. You're in it until it sells, yep. essentially. Yeah. So there's no guarantees there. Fantastic. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. What is the best investment you ever made? 
best investment I ever made. You may know it because you read my book. I bought the Ford Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. It was a pretty awesome investment. It's in the book. I think I paid 800,000 for 298 units in downtown Los Angeles. I sold it a couple of years later for two and a half million. And so that was a pretty good deal. I had to put some rehab money in it, but I still cleared about a million bucks, which was pretty early in my career. As you read in my book, it was a mixed blessing. Hey, big reward. But actually, it gave me a little bit of overconfidence, I think, which ended up with me kind of giving that back times 26 a few years later. But as an individual investment, that was pretty awesome. Mm. We're going to be talking about the book here, I'm sure, for the end of the show. The book's called Burn Zones. It'll be in the show notes. It's one of my mentor, Joe Fairless's favorite books about real estate investing. So that's a pretty huge endorsement. He says that pretty freely. So it's, and I've read it. It's a great book. I read it really quickly and I'm not a fast reader. So definitely worth looking into. Second question, and I feel like we're going to think I know what your answer is going to be. What is the worst investment you ever made? That is such an easy answer if you read the book. It's called Woodland Meadows. It was a total disaster. So for those of you who don't know the story, it was 1,100 units, one of the biggest apartment complexes in the country. And I bought it for $13.5 million. And I had this history of turning around bigger and bigger properties that started it with four units. And you know, now I was at 1,100 units. And the property was nicknamed Uzi Alley because of all the drugs and crime that had infested the property. And I bought it. I moved in. I turned around the property, great success story, and then an ice storm hit the property and it triggered this extraordinary sequence of events in which I lost Woodland Meadows. I owned about 3,000 other units. I lost everything else and I ended up, even after losing everything, I had $26 million in debt. So how do you do that? You have to read the book because it's such an extraordinary sequence. It's something I could never imagine happening because I had had so much success and now it was just failure after failure. It was a complete disaster. So, Oh yeah, the book's a full story and so it's a life story too, and it's what only 240 pages. I got my copy right here. So uh, uh, there, we pick it up. It's a good read, good story. Yeah, but that makes sense that that was your answer. So my favorite of these three favorite questions, the last one: What is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? The most important lesson. Let me think about. I've learned a lot because every time, and just uh, as I reflect. You always learn more from your failures and their successes. So I'm thinking of, you know, the big failure with the Meadows. What could I have done wrong? What did I do wrong? I did a lot of things wrong. But one of the things was what drove my success was kind of this blind. I put blinders on and I really like focus. This is the goal and I'm going to achieve it no matter what. I'm going to just focus on this goal and I'm going to achieve it. As things started going sideways at that property, started going wrong, I said, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to rebuild. That's my goal. I'm going to do it. And there was points at which I could have taken a much better, if I listened to others, maybe step back a little bit and listen to others or maybe decided to change course, which just wasn't my nature. It was just like, this is the goal, I'm going to attain it. So I think being more flexible and allowing, having a plan, but allowing that plan to change as the circumstances change. And that is something I've learned to be more flexible you know, it's like you chart a course and then you're going to find your way to reach whatever the target is. And But sometimes the course will need to change and sometimes the target's going to move and you need to accommodate that. And so be flexible as you see things uh, changing. And that's really, I think, where the biggest opportunities are is when you can be flexible, can accommodate change and make decisions where you don't have all the necessary information. You're just making the best, best decision you could at the time. And reflecting on Willow Meadows, I think I did make the best decisions I could at the time with the information that I had. And they ended up looking back, some of the decisions were very poor, but at the time they made sense. So it's still tough. I fall into the same trap today. So I don't know. It's what drove my success. It's also what drove my failure. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you, I mean, you wouldn't be who you are today and you wouldn't be where you are today if you hadn't gone through that experience and learned everything you learned. And it's a tough balance to strike. I mean, so kind of dropped the Led Zeppelin lyric there, my favorite band, though the course may change sometimes, rivers always reach the sea. But as real estate investors, you know, people are, especially at the beginning, you have to avoid shiny object syndrome. You go to these seminars, especially, or RIA or something like that. And there's always somebody new that's making all kinds of money in this, they call super easy investment vehicle. And if you're not careful and you don't pick a course, you're going to be buying yet another educational course and on a monthly basis, and you're never going to do anything. Mm -hmm. So you have to be flexible. Absolutely. But as you kind of alluded to there, you have to pick a course. Mm -hmm. You can't just blow it in the wind. So striking that balance is difficult. So I, I don't challenge. think you can really be faulted for that. Yeah. And then, and then I guess the other part is hard work to everything, whether whatever you do, if, if you work hard at it, you can generally, that's what's going to drive succeed. Even even the best plan possible, if you can't execute on it and work hard and whatever you see at those classes, I mean, I shouldn't say there's no one out there, but generally to succeed, you're going to need to work hard. Oh yeah, absolutely. It might not be no one for the most part. Everybody out there that's having a lot of success in whatever they're doing, they put had to put a lot of work in to get there. You know, the, a saying about overnight successes, but it just took 20 years to get there. <laughs> you don't see yep. the repeated failures and sleepless nights and money lost and or money just sunk in that, you mm -hmm. know, it takes forever to come back and take a lot of dedication. So absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you for all that. You know, note investing is definitely a very interesting topic. I get more intrigued as I learn about it, but you know, shiny object syndrome, I'm, <laughs> I'm staying yeah. the course. So where can folks get in touch with you if they want to learn more about the fund and, and all that good stuff? Yeah. 8hpservicing.com is where you can connect with us. So that's go to AHP servicing. You can invest there. You can learn about, you know, if you do decide to buy a note, we may be able to offer you notes for sale. We can also offer you, um, we can also service those loans. And so you can do that in a compliant manner. And you can quarterback us. So even if you only own one loan, we try to make a very conscious effort to treat every investor the same, whether you own one loan or you own a thousand loans. So feel free to ask us all the questions you need and use this as a resource because they ultimately, we had to make a decision early on, are we going to accommodate really small investors? And, you know, I can reflect back. Well, not that many, a decade ago, I was a really small investor in the note space. You know, our first loan purchase was like nine loans. And then over the last decade, we probably bought 8,000 plus loans. So a servicer who turned me down early on saying, oh, we're not, you're too small. I mean, in the end, it was an 8,000 loan plus portfolio. So for, at HP Servicing, we'll treat you as well as possible. I don't want to sound like an ad, just saying no, uh, we'll, we'll do totally our best. Fine. Yeah. Totally fine. I definitely get it. I think folks listening get it. And you never know who you're talking to. That's just the beginning of something huge. So definitely want to treat everybody with respect and treat everybody equally. And for the folks just listening who aren't seeing the text, George is spelled J-O-R-G-E, Newberry with one R. So if you're doing some Googling, you can find him pretty easily. So George, thank you for joining us today. It was a great conversation. And again, notes are definitely fascinating. I'm going to look more into your fund here in the near future. And I'm sure everybody got a lot of great, uh, great information out of it. So thanks again. I appreciate you having me on, Taylor. Thanks. My great pleasure. To everybody out there listening, thank you for joining us on Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. It's a big help if you know someone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their life please share the podcast with them and bring them into our tribe. Once again, thank you for joining us. And I hope you have a great rest of your day, great week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.